All right, we're continuing to work our way through Hebrews. If you turn to Hebrews 5, I know personally how memorable Vacation Bible School is for our children. Uh, The pastors have the privilege, I think you'd call it that, of um, volunteering to be in the skit most of the years. And uh, so I still have um, little kids uh, coming up to me uh, on a lot of Sundays saying, Hello, Pastor Beaker. Because two years ago, I was this scientist sidekick named Beaker. So I'm forever branded. It's a memorable week. All right. <clears throat> Hebrews 5. We're going to, um, I'm going to begin in Hebrews 4, verse 15, though. So if you'd start there with me. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin, for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. What a gracious God you are. That though you are a high king and a perfect high priest, that you would make known to us that we have a way to come before you confidently. But God, we would confess that we don't all do that. And therefore, we would ask that you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, would make your word effective to us this morning. That the preached word would reach our hearts in such a way that it would encourage us to confess and repent of our own ways that we trust in our own righteousness, and we would wholeheartedly leave here trusting in Christ, our great high priest, and come confidently before your throne of grace. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I love hamburgers. Um, You might join me in that love of beef. Um, There was a day, though, 
when a burger consisted of just a simple bun, you know, a, a, a piece of meat on a bun, and, and if you really wanted to get fancy, you'd add a piece of lettuce and tomato. But, um, um, and, and therefore, you know, growing up, I loved to eat at McDonald's. We do that. And I, I realized that, that some of you probably just winced inside. Probably even got angry at me saying that that. Maybe even disqualified me from preaching, but hope not. Um, but, you know, fancy for me was a Big Mac with that special unknown mystery sauce on it. I mean, it just melts in your mouth. But we have evolved. Long gone are the days of those simple burgers, right? Just within a few miles of our church, we have, we have places like Burger Fi, Burger U, Smash Burger, um, Wall Burger, and probably many others. You can add things to your burgers like smoked apple, crispy bacon, goat cheese, and avocados, and baby spinach, and cucumbers, stuff called uh, Frank's Red Red Hot Buffalo Sauce, whatever that is. (laughs) Anything you really want, you can add it to your burger. If you're a burger person, you've tasted some of these. Um... You know that burgers are better now. <laughs> so it's hard to go back to the old. It's hard to go back to a simple burger at McDonald's. So let me tell you what I think the, why I think the writer of Hebrews is, is writing these particular verses here. In verse 16 of chapter 4, he's revealed one of the most valuable and satisfying to the soul an offer anyone that could ever have. He says it's possible for you and I to have absolute confidence boldness, freedom to come before the God of the universe. Just like a son has to his father, to draw near to him, now in this life and when we stand before him in judgment one day. How sweet is that thought? But these first century Christians were being tempted to turn back to the old, to go back to something, an old source of salvation, Old Testament Levitical system of a human priest representing them through sacrifices and traditions, which he's saying this would cause them to lose confidence. He's pleading with them in this passage. He says, don't go back. He says, Jesus is better. He's a better high priest and a better source of salvation. Now, I seriously doubt any of us are tempted in that exact same way. I doubt any of us are tempted to, you know, next week, Find a temple and go back and find a a priest. Offer sacrifices for us. But just as the old system for them offered a a tangible checklist of do's and don'ts where someone could feel justified if if you're just doing the right things and you're avoiding the wrong things, we also are tempted to create and trust in that same type of system. To draw confidence before God on any given day based on our external Religion, our external goodness, our external performance. It can become easily a source of salvation for us that we trust in. And to the extent we look back to that, or trust in something other than Jesus, we will struggle to to do one of the most satisfying things offered to us, which is to draw near to our God with great confidence sitting on a throne of grace, offering abundance 
abundance of grace and mercy in our time of need. So he says to us also, Jesus is a better Savior. And that's what we're going to look at today. Jesus is a better Savior. And how these verses are laid out, just a flyby, verses 1 through 4, goes through, okay, this is a high priest. Now, they would have really identified with that. that was, they were still dealing with that. Versus, he, he would say, hey, look, a priest, he, um, you know, he mediates salvation. He understands weakness, and he's appointed to his office. But then he walks through 5 through 10, the rest of the passage, saying, Jesus is a better high priest and Savior in his appointing. He's a better high priest and Savior in his understanding of our weakness. He's a better high priest in his saving. So let's look first with his appointing. He's a better Savior in his appointing. Okay, verse 1. Keep your Bibles out. We're going to walk through the text, look at it a lot. Verse 1 makes it clear that every high priest had to be chosen or appointed to act on behalf of others. In other words... Moses in the Old Testament, he didn't just stand up and say, okay, everybody, who wants to be the high priest this year? Any volunteers? Okay, I see you in the back. Step forward. No one could exalt himself to such an important role. He had to be called or appointed. We understand this. If you go to work um, this this week and you're like, I just I think I'm going to appoint myself to be the boss today. So I want you to do this and you to do that. And, you know, although that would be probably nice... <laughs> You just can't do that. It works that way in the church as well. Um, you know, we don't just in a given week say, hey, okay, who wants to preach this week? Who wants to be an elder or a deacon? Pastors and elders and deacons are appointed, called and elected to that office. In many cases, the appointment to the office actually validates their actions. So think about a lawyer. Um, you know, I've always, always found it interesting that you can walk into the court and you can represent yourself as a lawyer. But you can't be the judge, right? You can't represent yourself as a judge. If you get in trouble sometime and you find yourself in court and your sister or mom or your spouse walks in with a robe and runs up front and says, I declare that they're not guilty, There's, it's just not going to work. <laughs> if you were thinking that might work, which I'm sure none of you were. But only a judge can act with authority. Actions are validated because they were appointed to that position. Okay, I think that makes sense. And verse 1 reminds us that a high priest in the Old Testament had to be appointed by God to act on behalf of God in relation to men. And verse 4 reminds us that the first high priest, Moses' brother Aaron, he didn't exalt himself. He was called by God. In Leviticus 8, he was chosen anointed with oil and the blood of animals before the whole congregation to show that he was set apart by God to this task. And Aaron and all the 80-some-odd priests after Aaron throughout the Old Testament were given authority to represent, act on behalf of the people. They would go into the tabernacle or temple, one of their main functions, and they would sacrifice animals for the atonement of the sins of the people. Now, get this, when the appointed person shed blood for you, God would accept it as if your sins had been judged already, and you would leave there forgiven because the appointed priest acted on your behalf. That was his role. That's what he's appointed to do. So now he texts, he transitions as he's, he's got them. It's like, okay, I can identify with that. I do that. I've done that. I grew up doing that. And he says, so also, verse 5, so also Christ. 
He didn't exalt himself to this position. He didn't appoint himself. In fact, they might remember how Jesus constantly said things like in John 5, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or in John 7, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Jesus, in other words, is the final and better appointed judge and mediator and savior. He has all authority to act as your representative on behalf of God. He's better because he's appointed by God to that. And here's why, where I think many of us struggle with this, one place at least, is I think that it's in every one of us. I know it's in me to, to go back and appoint myself as high priest, my own high priest. Here's what I mean by that. You know, I, I don't think we, any of us really dress up in robes or kill animals, I hope. But I think we're tempted to think that we can often represent ourselves before God with our own sacrifice of good works, our great life before God, that we can represent ourselves. Ask most anyone out on the street or your friends at school or at work, hey, what, you know, if you arrive before God in heaven one day and he asks you, why should I let you in? It's almost as if they put on their robes and say, well, let me represent myself. And they will, go, they will tell you something about their, their moral record. They will, they will think, they will say something, to think that they can represent themselves before God and be their own high priest. We as Christians are constantly tempted to go back to that. That system, we easily offer our sacrifices of our consistent quiet times, our ongoing generosity, our good works to earn God's blessing and his favor, to think that God is more approved of us and loves us more on our best days. It's often a subtle way of trying to atone for our own sin, of trying to represent ourselves as our own high priest. But the truth in this passage is, is that you and I were not and cannot be appointed to that task. We're not appointed to save ourselves or be our own high priest. We don't have the authority to represent ourselves for God. To the extent that you try to do that functionally in your life, it's to the extent that you will lose confidence, that you lack confidence to draw, draw near to the throne of grace. We must identify areas in our lives and ways that we still try to do this to repent, to repent of our external righteousness we trust in and, and believe today that Jesus is so much better of a high priest and savior than we are. Or any other system of religion of do's and don'ts. Or your moral record. Now on the positive side, if you find yourself lacking confidence before God, that we can leave here knowing on this point that if God himself has appointed someone to represent you, to act on your behalf, who are you to argue or to stand in his way? <laughs> oh, the confidence we should have to draw near to God if he appointed someone And he already acted on your behalf. Jesus is a better savior through his appointment. Secondly, Jesus is a better savior in his understanding weakness. His understanding our weaknesses. All right, verse 2 points out the fact that these high priests were far from perfect. 
They were, it says, beset with weakness. See that? Beset with weakness. Beset means to be surrounded by something. Like being surrounded by a crowd at a big sporting event or if you've ever been to Disney at Christmas time. That means beset by crowd, <laughs> to be beset by something. Um, it can also be mean, beset can mean here to be clothed with something. So it's interesting if you think about it, the picture they would have had is um, when they think of a high priest, oh, he's beset with clothing that is beautiful and glorious, purple and blue, fine linens, adorned with gold and fine jewel, uh, jewels. That's what they would have thought of as a priest, but any wise priest, any wise priest would say, hey, I want you to know that this is just my outward clothing. And it just represents something to come or someone to come. But inwardly, look, I am clothed with weakness. I am clothed with struggle and sin just like you. Right? Now, this was an understatement. As you consider the first high priest, Aaron, that he mentions here, if you remember, he didn't just struggle with some like light anxiety or impatience every now and then. The man doubted Moses was coming down from the mountain uh, from being with God, so he actually led the people into making a golden calf to lead them. It's pretty messed up. And then he lied about it. And then he, um, he challenges Moses' authority later so much out of jealousy that he led his sister's arm to almost rot with leprosy. So this is, you know, to be clothed with sin and weakness was an understatement for Aaron. But to them, knowing this, this was an advantage. Someone who's clothed with such struggle and weakness and they know about it themselves is able to understand you, right? As verse 2 says, he can deal gently, this high priest can deal gently with your Ignorance, your waywardness, your straying, your struggle, your doubt, your ongoing sin. When you come to him with your own junk. We get that. It's easier for us to bring our sin and struggle to someone who, who, who's been through the same. Could you imagine if you um, came to one of your pastors, to Matt or Mike and I, and you're like, Hey, look, I just, I need you to know, like, I've really been struggling here. Um, there's been bitterness or anger or lust and, or whatever, and we listen quietly to you, and, and then you get done, and we look at you and be like, what in the world? I, I mean, what were you thinking when you did that? That's crazy. I mean, we would have never done that. <laughs> like, whoa, you need help. <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't probably come again, right? Um, a wise pastor will be honest like a wise priest. Ignorance? Um, man, my, my kids ask me questions all the time, even theological ones that I really wrestle to know how to answer. <laughs> um, impatience? Yes, that's probably my most recent thing I'm struggling with. Um, anger? Yes. Jealousy? Yes. Lust? Yes. It doesn't mean that we've all acted out in the same way on everything. And, um, but we surely know the temptation to do so at minimum. And surely we know 
very well some of our own weaknesses and struggles that you don't have. And surely we have a log in our own eye to look at through to see and deal with your speck when you come. And the more someone is able to understand and be honest about their own sin and struggle, the more you expect they will, they will show gentleness and grace towards you. And the writer says, look, a high priest might be able to do that. And you might be thinking a, a spouse or a friend does that for me. But he says here, he says, look, Jesus is better. Jesus is better at this in understanding sin and weakness. And you might rightfully ask, well, how in the world? Jesus, perfect Jesus, how can he understand like that? Two ways I want to look at. Number one, through his life, understanding weakness through his life. The writer has labored hard throughout this book to show that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, his eminence, his power, his supremacy. But verse 7, he says, don't forget about the days in his flesh. It's a reminder that Jesus was fully human. In other words, do you struggle with finances? Jesus was poor his whole life, even homeless a lot of it. Do you struggle with loneliness? Jesus has felt abandoned, even by his own family and his Father in heaven on the cross. Have you lost loved ones? Jesus most likely lost his own father sometime when he was a teenager or in his 20s. He wept when he lost his friend Lazarus. Do you feel misunderstood? Jesus felt misunderstood by almost everybody, uh, but his own family misunderstood him, which must have been very painful. Jesus was fully God, but also fully 100% totally human in the flesh. And he knew struggle and weakness like you throughout living a life like we do. But also through his ministry, he understood weakness. So on top of all this, verse 7 says, He offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. It's probably pointing to the night before he was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane. Luke 22 tells us that Jesus took his best friends and asked them to pray. And while they fell asleep, he pleaded with God, God, Father, if you are willing, would you remove this cup from me? Yet not my will, but yours be done. And then in verse 22, he says, it says, And being in agony, he was praying very fervently. His sweat became like drops of blood falling to the ground. As one pastor said of this text, So Jesus God in the flesh shows up in the garden, becomes overwhelmed, distressed, fearful, exhausted. So much so that the weight of the stress makes him begin to sweat blood. And the book of Hebrews is saying to you and me and that in this moment, the weight, all the weight that accompanies sin and the shame and the guilt and the despair, all the overwhelming force of our own failures falls on the soul of Jesus and he begins to crush him. So back in Hebrews 4.15, when it says that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, even though he never sinned, don't think that that makes him unable to understand weakness and struggle. I mean, if you think about it, look, we, when we're tempted to give in to sin, I mean, we might struggle for 30 seconds at times. I feel like I'm going to be anxious now. Nah, I probably shouldn't be. Okay, I'm anxious. <laughs> I feel like I shouldn't be impatient. God says, you know, don't be. I'm angry at you now. 
do what I want now. I mean, and you go down the line. Like we, we struggle for one, three, four, five minutes at most sometimes in a lot of our sin to exalt myself in any given conversation, make myself look good. Sometimes it doesn't even come into my consciousness to fight it. And Jesus in the garden, we see here, he's like in the, in the trenches of wrestling with temptation to the point of shedding blood. He knows what it's like to wrestle, to be tempted in every way, and to resist it. So even though he didn't sin, he knows what it's like to struggle. He knows weakness. And so many of us think, many of us struggle to think that God is so distant because of his supremacy and his holiness that he surely can't understand our weaknesses, our days in the flesh. Some think of God as so quick-tempered or easily angered at us. He's harsh. He's impatient. He just can't understand why we keep failing, why we keep struggling. But we see here that God the Father appointed a better high priest and Savior than any other friend or pastor ever. It was God's heart to have a way to understand our, our weakness and our struggle. And he can deal more gently and graciously with you in that than anyone else. We were looking last week at this in um, last week's sermon discussion in our life group, verse uh, 15 of chapter 4, how Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. And one of the girls in our life group um, who is very honest about some of her struggles in life and, and even some of her struggles with God and, and seeing him as loving towards her um, she, it's like she just drew a breath of air and she says, it, is so, it brings me so much comfort to know that in any given struggle I have, that God has been here. That God has been here. She later closed this in prayer that night, which she rarely does, with a, with a notice, noticeable confidence. It's like this truth was seeping down into her heart. That we were able to draw near to God confidently because there, there is grace. And there she found understanding of her own struggle. What are you struggling with? What's your weakness currently? Or is it evident? God has been there. He understands. Jesus is a better high priest and savior than anything or anyone else. In both his appointing and his understanding of our weakness. And lastly... Jesus is a better Savior in his saving, his ability to save. As verse 1 says, the main responsibility of a high priest was to, quote, act on behalf of men in relation to God. A high priest was a mediator of salvation, bringing sinful men back into fellowship with God through gifts and sacrifices. So when it comes to mediation and salvation, the writer, it's like he rolls up his sleeves and like, this is going to be an easy one. <laughs> Jesus is so much better of a Savior in saving you. In verse 9, he calls Jesus the source of eternal salvation. The source of eternal salvation. The source of something. Let me illustrate a source. Millions of Americans and many of you uh, get Social Security checks every month. It's a wonderful privilege of living in this country. But most of us know that the check, the, 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 the money actually doesn't come from the mailman. Right? Like he just delivers the check. There is a pot, a source uh, where that money comes from. The reason you get money from it is because you and millions of others 
uh, before you and now pay in. They pay into this Social Security and then you dr- we, we draw from that source that we pay into. These first century Christians were tempted to go back to an old source of salvation, to depend on an imperfect priestly mediator that's offering imperfect sacrifices. And you and I, and most everyone else in the world, are tempted to look back at imperfect source of salvation as well. We, we try to draw upon an imperfect moral record. Hey God, look at how good I am. In reality, it's so flawed, so much unrighteousness. Now, some of you who know Social Security well know how imperfect that source of funding might be in the future. It's not a perfect source of future revenue to rely on. And therefore, if you rely on it and trust in it, you'll lose confidence in that source in your financial security. You'll, you won't have a lot of confidence in your life. In the same way, the more you draw upon your moral record or your daily performance as the source of your confidence of God's love and approval for you, the more you will lose confidence, you'll lack confidence in drawing near to him on a daily basis. It's just simply your moral record is an imperfect source of salvation. If you struggle to to, to really believe this, think of what your confidence would be like that if, I was, if we were supernaturally able to kind of draw what you have thought, your darkest thoughts this week or things you thought towards another person or even yourself or your doubt towards God and, and we put it up on a screen. If you did that right now, I'll tell you, I would not have much confidence right now. I'd be darting out of here. I'd lose my confidence. It shows here that Jesus is so much better a source of salvation than our righteousness. And, and we see that in two ways, and I'll end with that. Number one, he's a better sacrifice. See, again, priests were sinful in themselves. They knew that. They had imperfect sacrifices. They had to offer these for them their own sins as well as the people, it says. Every good priest would have known as well that, look, the Old Testament says that these the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for your sins. Those are imperfect too. It's an imperfect sacrifice. It's only temporary. It's a pointer to something else, a better sacrifice. But Jesus, he didn't just offer, come to offer a better sacrifice in an animal. He came to become the sacrifice. This is why, so interestingly, verse 7 says that Jesus offered up prayers with incredible anxiety to God his Father. It says that he was a, to God who was able to save him from death. Isn't that interesting? Let's think about it. It says that God heard his prayers. He offered up prayers. God was able to hear him, able to save him from death. God heard him. 24 hours later, Jesus is dead. Why? Because they knew that there's no plan B. We are in a mess if we leave, if, if, they, if they left it up to our own sacrifice, our good works. There's no plan B. He was the better and final sacrifice. Now, one application I've got to make real quickly is that some of you have lack confidence 
in your prayers because, because you don't know if they're really being answered or heard. And this verse is really interesting on this. Um, think about it. Jesus prayed to be saved. God heard him, able to save him, and Jesus died. My six-year-old, um, Avery, asked me um, this week, she said, Daddy, this is kind of out of the blue, um, could you tell me why when I prayed so hard I still got the stomach bug a few months ago? It, honestly, I mean, I've, you know, I've been to seminary and it's still a hard question to answer. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I don't have it, but I'll tell you, I still wrestle with it. But listen, oh, the wisdom and goodness and love of God in not answering his own son's prayer the way that we would have thought that he would have answered if we were there in the garden with him. That his disciples thought that God should have answered it. Oh, the wisdom and goodness of God in not answering our prayers always the way that we think he should. Jesus is a better and perfect sacrifice and needed to pay for our sins. Jesus was the only way. Lastly, not just a better sacrifice, but a better, a better obedience. Okay, a better obedience. This passage is full of this, so I'm going to try to summarize closing by looking at, at a better obedience. In contrast to priests who constantly disobeyed God, Hebrews 4.15 and 1 Peter 2.22 and other verses say that Jesus never sinned. He never missed the mark like you and I do daily. Verse 8 says that he learned obedience through what he suffered. This doesn't mean that Jesus at one time didn't obey and, and he learned how to obey. It means more like in Luke 2 when it says that Jesus advanced as, in learning as a child. The same way that he was able to apply obedience as he experienced the fullness of life with all its hardships and sufferings and opportunities to obey. You know, in other words, it's one thing for us to obey God when all things are going well. You know, work is going well and finances are rolling and, you know, I just don't struggle as much with anxiety there. But remove all that. <laughs> it's a whole different story. To endure and obey God when life is hard, when we're not healthy and all the things are falling apart, it's just, just it's different. And Jesus remained perfect obedient, perfectly obedient in the climax of suffering to the point of crying out in the garden, and, not my will, but yours be done, God. He, he had always been obedient, but at the, in Gethsemane and then on the cross, it was a submission to God's will and obedience that was at a different level. And verse 9 summarizes in saying, to the point where being made perfect, he was able to be the source of eternal salvation. Being made perfect, which could be said of no high priest. Because what he's saying there, being made perfect, it was the validation of God of his perfect obedience through his whole life. It was bringing the action of his obedience to completion so that he could be the source of eternal salvation. As one said, a salvation which, in which all the conditions, the attainments, the privileges and rewards transcend the conditions and limitations of time. And here's why this matters. See, most of the time when we think of our salvation, we just think of what Jesus did for us in removing our sin, or forgiving our sin to remove our unrighteousness. Jesus saving us by declaring us not guilty. But listen, we learn here that it, that's, that's so important, but it's 
it's, it's just half the coin. The other whole half of the coin is that he saves us by crediting to our account his record of obedience and declaring us as if we were, we had the righteous life that he has, that he had lived. We don't get just washed clean from our filth. We get clothed with the robes of his perfect, spotless obedience. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. So by faith alone, his perfect record becomes as if it was ours. Is your source of righteousness as good as that? It's not. What do you go to when you struggle in your hardest of times, in your most disobedient times? Go to the reality that you, Jesus has already been obedient for you in that time. How sweet that is. What would it do to you if your future confidence in your financial situation meant that it didn't, you know, it didn't even matter what you ever put in. You never paid into Social Security, but somebody had already paid trillions of dollars into this pot. You can't, you, you don't need to pay into it. In fact, you would, Nullify it if you tried to pay into it because there's, there's so much already there for you. Number one, it would humble you to receive something as a gift by grace. But number two, it would cause you to gain such confidence. And in the same way, once you have Christ as your better high priest, man, the security, the joy, the confidence we will have to draw near to God coming with his obedience and his righteousness. No, as many of you heard in the prayer and many of you know from the news announcement that we sent out, uh, Philip Stedman uh, passed away this week. He was loved in our church. His funeral was beautiful. Um, a story I loved that was told in the, in the funeral was this, that, that um, Philip loved The Price is Right. And um, he got to attend a live showing of it, uh, the story was told, in L.A. several years ago. And during one of the intermissions, he confidently stood up and um, he walked down front to meet Bob Barker. <laughs> that he shook hands with Bob and then he went on to, um, to talk with him as if he had known, uh, been best friends for years. That's how it was told. <laughs> and I love that story. I loved it anyway, but especially as I sat here pondering my own lack of confidence sometimes, I have to come before God. And it'd be so awesome to meet Bob Barker one day but to stand before Jesus and our Heavenly Father, the God of the universe who created you, with that much confidence, there's nothing that will satisfy our souls more. Let's trust Christ as a source of our eternal salvation. Let's pray. God, we are humbled to... Realize many of us need to be obedient this, even now, to be humbled by the reality that we cannot pay into this system. We cannot add any to it by our own righteousness. But oh, the joy that comes to realize that you paid it all. A righteousness that is not our own can be give credited to ours to our account, and therefore we can come so confidently before you. And I pray that people who are struggling right now, 
doubting your goodness and doubting your nearness to their to them and their struggle that you are God who understands and longs for us to draw near to you with the promise that you will draw near to us. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.